Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Jay Anders, Chief Medical Officer of Medicomp Systems, about electronic health records and clinician burnout. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. I'm joined today by Jay Anders, Chief Medical Officer of Medicomp Systems. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing very well, Jay. Excellent. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about um, Medicomp Systems and what you do there. Well, Medicomp Systems um, is a company that provides middleware into EHRs in the form of documentation and data striping and analysis. So our program basically is a form of clinical artificial intelligence that allows physicians to search for and find particular medical issues within a big bank of medical data, as well as being able to document that data in a coded format. Excellent. And today we're going to talk about clinician stress and uh, particularly what, you know, EHRs, uh, the sort of the, the, you know, what they can kind of contribute to that and, and ways to reduce that stress. So, um, you know, let, let's just jump right into it. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of, you know, what EHRs are doing to uh, to clinicians? Well, EHRs were never designed by clinicians for clinicians. They are systems that were designed to basically do a claim or capture data for a claim. They never were designed with the clinical aspect in mind. They just wanted to collect the data, make sure it's all there, and then be sure to support a claim that's gone out. Um, They really don't function as they should. Physicians have a hard time finding things in them. They have a hard time deciphering that information because it's scattered all over the place. And that just adds more issues. So the other the other part of them is to document inside of these systems. Uh, you know, every physician has been almost trained now today to dictate or to do some type of voice. Uh, but now you're either dictating it with voice or you're typing it in. And there's none of that is, information is available to you down the road. It's just another collection of words that you have to cipher and go through to figure out what's actually in it. And, you know, I guess, how how have we gotten to this point? I guess, you know, EHRs have been around for how, how long would you say, like 10, 15 years, maybe more? It, well, maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah. They started out as what what I call read-only systems, where mm-hmm. you just to look at data. But a true EMR, eh, probably 15 years or so. <laughs> but, you know, sort of true uh, penetration of it, you know, where, you know, you don't, your hospital doesn't have any more written records. That's probably, you know, in the last probably 10 years, maybe, where everybody's using EHRs? Or would you say 15? Uh, uh, I would say probably you know, 15 to 10 years ago. I mean, yeah. it, it really depends on what you call putting in, you know, no writing. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. typing it on a piece of paper, yeah. But now you're just typing it in a computer. So it's almost the same, only it's electronic. And is it just a matter – is it also a matter of a lot of different systems? Is there interoperability that's that's a problem as well? Or is it just sort of – there's just too much out there right now? Well, interoperability really doesn't exist. Um, You talk about systems communicating with other systems, and the COVID-19 pandemic is a 
prime example of that. There is no central location where data is going into a system that can be deciphered and used for research to combat this pandemic. It first was going to the CDC, now it's going to HHS, and there's no way of communicating that back to the providers that actually have to use that information. So what can we do to, you know, sort of resolve these these major issues? Well, actually, I have several ideas. Um, number one, the systems need to be designed to support clinicians and their workflow, not designed to, like I said, capture data for a claim. So what I mean by that is be able to go into a very large medical record and put in the characteristics of COVID-19 and have that record say there's a high, medium, or low probability that this patient actually has this disease or has they, have they been tested before? So to be able to glean out information from the EMR to support a particular physician and a particular physician's workflow is key. Interoperability is the other thing. If, if I could have access to information from a hospital that's just right down the road to get information regarding a patient, did they have a positive COVID-19 test or not? When was their last test done? Simple things like that really impact patient care. It goes to routine medical care as well. When was the last blood test done? What were the values of that last blood test? I can't get those because they're not available. There go you go and order another test so you can try to figure out what's going on with the patient. So interoperability not only would enhance patient care and safety, but it would also reduce medical costs because you wouldn't be repeating things that you already have the information for. Um, and now, you know, obviously you guys have a, have a technology that can, can help with this. How, how widespread is, is, uh, you know, is this kind of technology and how, you know, is it being, you know, I guess like where are we in sort of solving the problem? Well, it takes adoption of, of new technology to make this really happen. And until EMR companies have figured out that they're in the business of actually taking care of patients and physicians, it's going to be really slow to come out and, and to be used widely. Um, we have our particular program is in the DOD. It's in several other EMR companies. But you've got to be able to use the data to its maximum capability. And it, people are just slow to adopt that kind of thing because why change what I'm already doing? Um, you have hospitals that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on EMRs that just don't work. So you come up with a new program that you could add into that EMR or you could add on top of that EMR. And it's like, wait a minute, I just spent $350 million putting this in. I don't wanna spend any more money to do this regardless of its benefits. The other issue is that they're not looking to the physicians for guidance about what they need and what they can use. If they would do that, I think the adoption would be more easily done and more quickly done because you're actually supporting the people you created the program for. I mean, are steps being taken to kind of uh get to that point or I imagine you know there have been efforts made to you know to get that kind of adoption but it's like you said there's a lot of money that's already been invested so um it's a well, tough, it, tough cookie it, to crack I guess 
It, and, and it is, and especially coming to the interoperability world, because there's really no money to be made in the interoperability space, and therein lies the problem. So you don't have anybody stepping up to the plate saying, I can connect these systems and actually get that data moved from one place to another. So there's that issue. And then you also have the issue of the com competition between medical systems, meaning that I don't want my competing system to know how many patients I saw with uh, atherosclerotic heart disease and how many bypasses did they create. You know, all that that competitive information going from one place to another. So systems are very reluctant to open up their databases to be shared. Patients, on the other hand, that particular thought has changed. When this first all came out, I, had a, I saw a lot of patient resistance as to don't share my medical data with anybody. <laughs> now that's shifted. The, the patients are now realizing it's in my best interest as a patient for my physician to know everything they need to know about me to help me to be in better health or treat the problems that I have. So it's not the patients anymore, I think, are the issues. Now I think we're back to institutions. And the biggest institution that has the problem is our federal government. They have still yet to settle on a particular method of how you need to transmit this data. So you've heard a lot about fire protocols and CRDAs and all these other things, but no one has settled on the fact, okay, if you want to share data, this is the standard. Now we've got five or six, and it really depends on which one of the five or six you want to do, and then they all have to be cross-translated. And nobody really wants to tackle that problem. So, I mean, or what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, uh, you're not you're not Nostradamus, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. But um, you know, what's what's it going to take to to get the government to kind of figure this out and to get everybody on board? It seems like a huge uh, task. Well, one of the things about this pandemic, it's it's been a horrible thing for the country to go through and the people who have it and all of the death that's occurred from it. However, it has started to bring to the forefront the fact that we need to be able to exchange medical information in a coded format across every platform in the United States. So that discussion now is slowly starting to surface. The whole mix-up between the CDC and HHS, no protocols, none of that. Now people are starting, the hospitals now are starting to say, wait a minute, you guys need to get your act together. Tell us what you want and how to send it to you, and we will, but you've got to get yourself together to do that. So it's going to take administrative changes at the federal level, I believe, with standards, protocols, to, to make this actually happen. And it's it's inching that way. I hear a more, because of the pandemic, a more furious response to, wait a minute, quit asking for this, then that, then this. So I think it's going to get better. It's, and I think this pandemic may have uh, actually scooted it along a little faster down the pathway. I mean, e even with it going a little faster, what are you what are you expecting or when are you expecting to see, you know, the change needed, like 10 years or? Less than that. I think it's going to be less than that. Okay. I quite frankly see we're going to see real change in the next three to five years. That's pretty good. I mean, in terms of governmental change, that's not too bad. I guess. Although I guess it's been less. But, but, but 
Yeah, they've been working on it for 25 years, so yeah. okay. <laughs> We're just looking at today, so. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, all right, well, so let's get back to, you know, clinicians and, and sort of, you know, what they're, what they're dealing with. Um, you now, you mentioned that, you know, obviously the way things are set up is, isn't working for them. You know, how, how is it contributing to sort of, you know, this – the burnout that we're seeing. Obviously, you know, I think originally when people think of clinician burnout, they think, oh, they're working too many hours and, you know, they've got too many cases and it's, it's very stressful. But obviously this is just a whole other layer of, of stress that's being, being dumped on them. Um, what kinds of things are they, are they having to deal with? Well, if you think about having most EMRs in the country being rated by physicians with a grade of F, Physicians are not only having to, let's go back to the days before the pandemic for just a minute. So every day you would go and see your patients and you would have to spend several hours because of poorly designed systems, not taking care of patients, but using a system to help record what you've done. It really hasn't assisted you in what you've done, but you have to put in the data, you have to type out the notes, you have to make the order, all the things that a physician does when, it, when they're caring for patients. So that was the normal day before the pandemic. Now let's move ahead a little bit. People were burned out with that. Mm -hmm. Now you are at risk when you're seeing patients. And I mean just in a regular office, not in an ER or in a COVID-19 unit. When you have a positive rate that runs in four to five or six per thousand, that means in a normal month of work, you're going to run into several people that have had this disease or have this disease, and it's also asymptomatic. So it's almost like every patient you see is a potential problem for you personally and your family to take home to. Mm -hmm. So that is massive stress. So let's put that on top of a poor system to the hours I have to spend to work on that. Then you've got people saying, I just can't do this anymore. Not only is it a really hard job now because of all the COVID-19 protocols and PPE that I have to wear and everything else, but I still got this rotten piece of electronic equipment that I have to work on. So if you want to, the, the pandemic's going to be what the pandemic is, but you can change that system to make that much easier to use and shorten your workday so you don't have that stress on top of the stress of actually seeing patients. Have we seen um, a lot of clinicians leave or quit because of just, you know, the, the growing uh, burden that this has added to their day? There's been a lot of, of clinicians who have had, they're seasoned physicians that have had 20 years of experience that are leaving the practice of medicine because they're tired of dealing with all of the issues. And when I mean issues, I mean patient issues as well as, you know, HIT issues that they've had to go through. You know, it's just not worth it to them anymore. They're going out and doing other things and they're smart people and they can go out and do other things. The problem is it's the best, the el the more elder at best trained physicians that are leaving. So the people with experience who've been doing it for 15 or 20 years saying, hmm, I just can't, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm gonna go find something else that are leaving the practice of medicine. So that's a problem when it comes to the overall health of the health delivery system, 
when your best, brightest, and most experienced start to leave. Yeah, I would think so. Um, and I mean, are are you convinced that you know, with you know, in say three to five years, you know, where there's some sort of standard in place, um, we can kind of turn the tide on this on this trend. Well, I think we could. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we, I think we could change it more quickly than that should some people make some decisions and have the willingness to add things into existing EMRs that will actually improve that workflow today without ripping the whole thing out and starting over, putting add-ins and add-ons inside these programs to make them more usable and more beneficial to the physician in the treatment of patients. So I think it could it could be much more done more quickly than I'm three to five years. Three to five years is the time frame I'm thinking that interoperability may start to dust mm -hmm. out and actually have a path. I think you could make EMRs better today, and there's a lot of companies, including ours, that are constructing pieces that would make that happen tomorrow. So you could add that to your existing EMR and make it more workable for with everything else. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess it's just a matter of uh, convincing <laughs> these institutions that this is something they need to do. That's the probably the biggest challenge. Um, there is expense involved, but when it comes to the productivity increases and the, pa the physician and patient satisfaction improvement, it really kind of pays for itself over mm -hmm. the long period of time. And progressive institutions are starting to do that. And not just EMR companies, but the medical delivery institutions are saying, I've got 350 doctors in this massive uh, ACO or Medicare Advantage plan, and it ain't working for us. So what do we need to do to make this better? And they're searching. They're out there looking for those items that they can attach to the existing EMR and the EMR data to make that happen. And that's that's kind of where the traction is right now. It's the bigger organizations are saying, you know, if the EMR company won't provide it for us, we'll do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they're big enough to do it. And I guess you can take, you know, those examples when, you know, when bigger institutions do it and sort of, you know, go to others and say, hey, look, look at this is what, what these guys did and it's really turned things around. You should do it too. Exactly. And I it'll start to to dwindle down to smaller institutions and then finally, hopefully, EMR companies will pick up and say, wait a minute, we've been doing this the wrong way. Why can't we make our EMR act like these people's EMR that they just added things to? What's the functionality that everybody likes over there that we're not giving them with the original installation? And then I'll see, I, I think you'll see it start to take off where, okay, let's get back to the physicians. What do they do? How do they do their job? Quit messing around with all the buzzwords like, you know, the AI and there's things out there that we're going to let the computer diagnose you, stand over in the corner. You don't have to touch anything. You just talk to it. It's <laughs> going to happen. That's nonsense. And it's, it's interesting to see how that narrative has still got traction today because that is pie in the sky five, eight years, 10 years out, maybe, when there's things you can do right now to make it happen and make it work very well. 
So it's always kick the can down the road. We'll do it when the computer figures it out. Well, the biggest, most brightest, fastest computer in a physician's office sits between their ears. <laughs> um, now, you, you, know, you sort of mentioned sort of these pie in the sky, uh, you know, promises. Was, is that uh, sort of the fault of just advertising and sort of, you know, kind of promising more than you can deliver? Or is that is that just something that, you know, uh, those are just expectations that aren't here yet? I, I think there's wishful thinking. I, I see glimmers. And to be honest, our company has its own clinical AI algorithm that we use to augment things. But I also think it's we don't want to change anything if it's the least bit going to interfere with our ability to generate funds and invest in the future. So they're waiting for it to be perfect mm. before adoption is actually done. And that will never be, nothing is ever perfect. And some of this stuff isn't even close. So I think it's just, it's the change that people yeah. just don't want to change. It's expensive and I just don't know it's going to help me very much, but it sure does look cool on a demo. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, like what, I guess let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the pain points that, you know, I guess will be involved, you know, initially before things really kind of get it, get into gear. Um, it, you know, like what, what kind of a, a time period is that, you know, if, you know, uh, an institution sort of, uh, you know, adds, you know, takes some of these add-on programs and kind of can improve their EHR. What kind of, uh, you know, growing process is there involved there? It's actually can be done very quickly. And what I mean by that is uh, what we do could be added to any existing system within 60 to 90 days. It's that fast. So there's not a long delay between the time the the commitment is made to add something to an EMR. It's the decision to actually do it. So, you know, there's expense, there's change management within your organization. You're going to have to train docs again. They'll be trained, I think, in a better with a better product, but there's all of that change management that you have to go through. And right now, with the pandemic, no one's doing anything. Yeah. It's it's kind of locked down. And quite frankly, I've been on hospital boards and when stuff like this comes up, the whole organization goes into a deep freeze. You just want to get through it. So once we get through it, I think you'll see this start to pick up again, but it's not going to be until most likely until we have a vaccine and things right. start to go back to normal again. Yeah, and who knows if normal will be the same normal we yeah. had before, right? <laughs> um, what What is normal? I know. I have no idea anymore. Um, so, and I imagine just the, the decision-making process for an institution is pretty involved. Like, you don't just go to one person and they say, okay, we'll do it. it there, there must be, like, a lot of meetings and discussion uh, over a, a, a extended period of time before, uh, you know, a hospital will say, yeah, we'll do it. Oh, yeah, there's at least between a six to 12 month vetting period, I'll call it, where the institution and all of its experts meet with the experts of whatever they're going to add to their system. 
and try to figure out the best path for that and the cost and the budgets and everything else to go with that. Uh, and hospitals and hospital institutions and medical institutions are not known to move at a fast pace. So that's, you know, that's just part of it. Yeah. So once, you, yeah, once you've made the decision, there's a vetting process that takes some time. You, you can get progressive institutions that can do it pretty quickly, but you can get people that will take over two years to do it, which is kind of nuts. But that's just the way the business is. Um, and yeah, and obviously the pandemic has pushed that even further down the road, I guess, just because of, like you said, everything's kind of in crisis mode right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, you know, we were talking about sort of, obviously this is a, a big stressor on, on clinicians, you know, using an EHR, EMR and, and sort of dealing with the you know, I guess the duplication of effort and, you know, a lot of the problems that, that go with it. When a program like this uh, is adopted and, and, you know, you can kind of see those improvements, what does that do to a clinician's day in terms of time saving? I mean, obviously it depends on, you know, what their caseload is and et cetera, but, you know, how, how does that sort of change what a, what a clinician is dealing with? Well, there's a couple of, of change items that I think are most important. The first is time. You, you use less of your time doing administrative tasks and more of your time actually seeing and treating patients. And that's pretty much a key element. No physician ever went through training to go and do administrative tasks. It just, you know, that you didn't go to school to write a note. Mm -hmm. So there's the time savings involved in finding and getting all that stuff done and done more quickly. The other thing that I think would help physicians and their attitude is having a system that actually assists them in doing their work. And what I mean by that is I've got, I'm an internist. A lot of patients I had have very large medical records with multiple medical problems that you're dealing with. So now I would like to look at that medical record and say, I want to see just the type 2 diabetes information in this chart. Just show that to me. I don't care about the hypertension and the heart disease and the knee pain and gout and everything else that this patient has had. I just today, right now, I want to deal with the diabetes. Focusing that physician mind and, and talent on just that data would save them a lot of time, give them the assistance they need because they're not searching through everything and be able to make very clear clinical decisions. And I think when that happens, you're gonna find physicians light up when they go to see their, when they go to use these medical systems because they, this thing actually helps me do what I do. It's like my stethoscope now. I needed that to listen to hearts and take blood pressures. Now I got this augmentation tool that helps me focus my mind on the clinical data that I need at this point in time with this patient for this particular disease and take out all the clinical noise and static that is located in a typical medical record. And a lot of this, um, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, busy work that physicians have to do now, that can't be delegated to somebody else, right? I mean, they have to be the ones that enter this stuff. Well, you're talking a little bit about scribes, mm -hmm. and scribes are a band-aid for poorly designed systems. It's because the systems are so hard to use that they actually want someone else using it while I'm in the room 
taking care of the patient and I'm talking and the patient is talking and the scribe is over in the corner doing what they have to do to document, collect, and input information. The problem with that is that if that system was developed to actually assist the, the clinician in the room, they wouldn't delegate it to a scribe. They'd be looking at it because it's now a tool to help them. And there's always that, I, I call it the error of, of translation, meaning I heard something and this this and the scribe heard something, the scribe documented that, I've got busy, I'm out of here, I get this note, I look at it, oh it looks okay to me, but it's actually wrong. Because the recollection of that particular encounter was one thing, my recollection was another, and now since it's all been just documented, it's out of sight, out of mind. That worries me as a clinician because now I'm responsible for what's in that medical record that somebody else really put together. Right. So as much as I like scribes and they have their place, the reason they're there, I want to get back to this, the reason they're there is because the systems that have been designed as EMRs are not usable enough at the point of care by the clinicians themselves. So they don't want to deal with it, poke it on somebody else, and I'll pay them to deal with it. And with these, with this newer technology, you wouldn't necessarily need scribes, or they would be used differently. Uh, you might need scribes very, very intermittently. I think the use of scribes would go way down with a well-designed, usable interface that would assist a clinician at the point of care. Interesting. Well, uh, Dr. Anders, this this is great stuff. Obviously, you know, it looks like we're going to have to wait a little while before. Uh, we actually see it happen, but uh, it sounds like you're pretty hopeful that uh, things could turn around in this area. Yeah, if it weren't for the pandemic, I think we would, we're going to lose 18 months in in healthcare, in innovation, in change, just because of the pandemic itself. So it's, it, the problem is it is what it is. So we have to deal with it. And once it's over, we can stick our periscopes back up and start thinking about the future. Well, great. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. That wraps up episode 11 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope to join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.